Stay tuned after the end of the episode for a bonus story that was left out of a previous episode. Local storytelling group Pivot recently ran a contest on the theme of Unintended. Nineteen people entered, and we posted the videos on YouTube. After 3,200 views and over 160 hours worth of views in the last 10 days, the winners have been selected by the Pivot board. Here they are, in order. We had a three-way tie for third, and each third-place winner will receive a $50 prize. Our first third-place winner is Rick Clark. Hello, my name is Rick Clark, and I want to share a story about a chance encounter. Um, It's a chance encounter that changed my life. It happened in 2015, and I'm really looking forward to sharing the story with you. Uh, To do so, I've got to go all the way back to the beginning. Um, I was born and raised here in Spokane, born in 1971. I was born into severe poverty. Uh, my mom and my dad got a divorce when I was one and my dad, uh, didn't want to be a dad. So he left and, um, it was left up to my mom to raise three of us on her own. Um, my dad made a few, uh, visits over the years, but we really didn't know him. And so I didn't have that father figure to really teach me the ropes and kind of guide me through life and teach me how to be a man. And, um, I don't know how to hunt. I don't know how to work on cars, uh, but being raised by all women, I can braid hair better than just about any guy I know. Um, But yeah, I was raised by my mom and my grandma and my two sisters. And we did the best we could. We, you know, back then um, we were on welfare. And so you would get a welfare check that would cover your rent and your utilities if you were really good at budgeting. It would also cover, uh, they would send food stamps to cover your food, your groceries for the month. But you had to be really, really good at budgeting and shopping, which we weren't. Um, and then you would get full medical insurance so we could go to the doctor whenever we wanted to. And there was programs for all sorts of things being on welfare. And so if you added all that up, it was the same amount of money as if you would have gone and worked a full-time minimum wage job away from home. And my mom tried that. My mom tried to do the right thing. She tried to get jobs and go work them. And she would work a lot of swing shifts and graveyard shifts at these entry-level positions because she didn't have anything more than a high school education. And so... Um, leaving three rowdy, rambunctious kids at home, it was a nightmare. We would always be calling her and bugging her. She would get in trouble at work. And so I do remember her trying several times to do the right thing and get a job. But like I said, when you could stay home with the kids and all of that stuff be covered, that's how we ended up doing it. And so at an early age, my sisters and I learned um, how to get creative when it came to food because we could never stretch those food stamps. We were always hungry by the middle of the month. And I remember that being one of my, just my strongest memories is that, that pain in my stomach and that emptiness in my stomach and not just being hungry, but not knowing where my next meal was coming from as a child that was um, detrimental. And so my sisters and I would get creative. We would dumpster dive. Uh, I remember oftentimes trying to talk friends in at school to have a sleepover so that I could go to their house and sleep uh, for the weekend, you know, 
because I knew that their families probably ate breakfast and dinner, you know, and so I would be trying to every week work on who I was going to go spend the night with. And so when that's your main focus, you live life a lot differently. And I knew that I was different. You know, other kids got to enjoy sports and go camping and skiing and go to concerts and stuff like that. And I just couldn't do that. And, and I didn't understand because I had the same sense of humor. I had the same interest. I was the same age. I was the same person. I just didn't have any money. And so, you know, over, year after year after year, by the time I got into high school, you know, I wasn't feeling real great about myself. And I didn't understand why, because I thought I was a good person, but I didn't understand why I was not willing to, or I was not capable of having what other people had. And so, um, like everybody else in my family, my sisters and I all dropped out of high school, you know, it got too hard. And so in the 10th grade, I got a 10th grade education and then I dropped out. I got my girlfriend pregnant, got a, you know, had a baby and got on welfare. Um, my sisters started having children and they got on welfare. And so that cycle just continued to turn and nobody in our family was shocked or upset or mad or happy. It wasn't anything. It was just, that was the way we were headed and it was kind of expected. And so, you know, over time through my twenties and thirties with homelessness or with poverty comes a lot of other stuff like drug and alcohol addiction in the, in the house, um, domestic violence in the house, uh, un unstable mental health in the, in the home, constantly being out of work and struggling, uh, those things all stem from poverty. And so that was my life through my 20s and my 30s. And fast forward to 2015, which wasn't too long ago. I'm 44 years old. I'm living in a in a trailer in Medical Lake. My landlord wants me out. I owe two months rent. Avista has just shut off my electricity. I don't have a car. I don't have a job. Um, my third marriage was on the rocks. My wife is living in a completely different place. Um, I was at the bottom again. And I wish that I could say that was the first time I'd experienced that much struggle, but that was just the way it was. Um, but everything accumulated to that day. And I remember standing up and looking in the mirror and just being tired. And I looked at myself and I said, I'm not going out like this. There has to be something more for me. I cannot be just the poor guy. I think I have more to give this world. And so I took my last $10 and I got on the bus and I headed into Spokane on the public transportation system. And I was going to go to Spokane Community College and see if I could enroll in school. It wasn't anything I was excited or happy about because I hadn't touched a textbook or done math in 28 years. So I was definitely afraid of this moment, but I really felt like I had no other option. I didn't know what else to do. And luckily my bus stopped at the plaza downtown and I had to get onto another bus, but I had about 10, 12 minutes, um, until my bus came. So I went upstairs and I was going to get a snack and a drink. And, um, I saw a man sitting outside of the store who was homeless. Um, two things really stood out. One, the severity of how homeless he was. His hair was almost dreadlocked because it was so dirty. His teeth were gone. Um, his clothes were filthy. Nobody was sitting with him. There was groups of homeless people all around, but he didn't even have a homeless person to hang out with. Like he wasn't doing well. His shoes were gone and it was March and you shouldn't be barefoot in March. And so the other thing that stood out was that he looked to be about my son's age and that just bothered me. And so I, I went up to him and I didn't know what else to say. I was nervous, but I, I, it was the first time in my life I set all my problems aside and I focused on a complete stranger and I said, Hey, are you hungry? And he looked up at me and he said, I'm starving. And I said, well, let's go. I've got 10 bucks. And so we bought Funyuns and Mountain Dew. And I, 
I sat with him for 10 minutes and I got to know this man. And in about, yeah, about eight minutes, I, I learned that he was dropped off in Spokane. He didn't have friends and family. He wasn't acclimating well. He was getting beat up a lot by other people on the streets. Um, the night before, he'd been robbed of his backpack. And so I said, you know what? I can't just leave you here like this. If you can meet me back here in two days at noon, right on the dot, I will bring you a backpack full of everything that you've lost. And I wrote down every size, pants, size shirts, shoe size, and he shook my hand. He was super happy and, and, and gracious, and it was like, thank you very much. And I went on my way, and I went to SCC that day, and I, I ended up registering for class. I took an assessment test, and I, I passed. It was a really low score, but they promised me that other people had scored lower, and I said, that's all I needed to hear. And I was on my way back, and I, I got on Facebook, and I had about 100 friends, and I said, hey, guys, um, I just registered for class. And um, by the way, I met this homeless man named Jared. Can you guys help me fill up a backpack? And we filled 25 backpacks in the first 24 hours because that post blew up. It went everywhere. People were dropping off, you know, toiletries and food items and clothing and socks and sleeping bags and tents. And so obviously I couldn't give Jared all that stuff. So I went around town with my kids and we started handing out backpacks to people experiencing homelessness. Uh, my time's almost up. So to make a long story short, that was 5,000 backpacks ago. That was the day that giving backpacks was created. Every day has been better than the, the next. I graduated with honors at Spokane Community College, and my son talked me into applying at Gonzaga University, which I never thought I would ever be able to be a student there. And Gonzaga answered back with a very large, like $34,000 scholarship to get me started. I just recently graduated from Gonzaga with my bachelor's degree in communications. Um, and, and Mike Rowe came, uh, some of you guys might know Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs. He came and paid off my tuition at Gonzaga. And so, uh, right now, all I want to do in life is go out and meet people where they're at and let them know that this doesn't define who they are. They may be in a bad spot, but I guarantee that that's not why they're put on this earth. They are here for a much bigger purpose. And I explain my story and say, I was living in my van four years ago. Now I'm just a graduate of Gonzaga. Um, it, it's really helped bring love and joy and compassion to the streets. Um, I'm honored to be able to do this work. It's all I want to do. And it was that one chance encounter. And to think that I almost passed that up. I almost didn't talk to that man. Um, I, I, I get chills thinking about what, what would be my life had I not done that. So it's just proof that no matter how bad your life is going, you're always able to help other people. You don't have to wait until your car's paid off and you retire. You can help people even on your worst day and it will become your most beautiful day. So that's my story. I hope it inspires and encourages you. My time is up. Thank you for listening and God bless. Our second third place winner is Ella Kerner. All right, so one day, my husband Nathan and I are driving up Monroe. We're headed from the South Hill to the north side to babysit my sister's daughter, my niece. And we've just passed the Monroe Street Bridge. We are almost to Safeway, but not quite. And we're listening to a book on tape, Wicked. And all of a sudden, Nathan reaches down and turns off the book on tape. And he says, Ella, there is something I have to tell you. And, oh, it's really bad. And I don't want to tell you, but I have to tell you. 
Um, I hope you can still love me. Now, no one wants to hear that <laughs> from their partner. Um, and I think any one of us um, hearing that would feel a little stressed out. Um, but I was more than a little stressed out. I was freaking the F out, just like full-blown panic attack. Um, I start sobbing um, uncontrollably, just like full body sobs. And I'm saying, just, just tell me, just tell me, just, just spit it out. What Nathan forgot, he knew this, uh, but he forgot, was that, um, see, I had been married before. Uh, Nathan and I met after I got divorced from my first husband. Um, we'll call him Mac. So um, Mac and I had been together uh, about five years. And um, one day, kind of out of the blue, we were sitting in the car and I was in the passenger seat and he was driving and he turned to me and said, Ella, I have something to tell you and it's really bad and I don't want to tell you and I hope we can get through it. And then Mac told me that he had been unfaithful, that he had cheated on me. And that was the beginning of the worst day of my life. And then the worst week of my life and the worst summer of my life and the worst year of my life. Because, you know, my life blew up. Everything I knew was gone. Um, I felt completely ungrounded. Um, as often happens with these things, it was more than just the first thing he told me, and it was like secret after secret spilling out, and every time I learned something new, it was my life blowing up in my face again, and, you know, I didn't just lose my husband um, when we chose to end that relationship. <laughs> um, I lost his family, my in-laws, I lost common friendships, I lost my self-esteem and my self-worth, and yeah, it took a long time to recover <laughs> from that bombshell um, that Mac had dropped on me. And here's Nathan doing it again. Like, that's what it felt like. Like, you too? Really? <laughs> I just got over the last one. And I met you, and you're sweet and kind, and I love you, and now here you are in the car, and you're gonna tell me the same thing again? Are you kidding me? So that's where I was at. I'm just like yelling at him, just tell me, just tell me already, get it over with. And he looks surprised, like he wasn't expecting this. And I take this moment to then remind him, this is exactly what happened last time. And he goes, oh, oh, no, 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 it's not that Ella. And I'm going, well then what is it? What is it? Just tell me already. And then he goes, Ella, no, no, I shit myself. <laughs> because see what happened was that as we crossed the Monroe Street Bridge Nathan had had a little bitty um a poop accident and he'd been like quietly trying to work up the nerve to tell me um and when he was finally ready a few blocks later he he reached over and he, he turned off the book on tape and he said <laughs> Ella, I have something to tell you, and it's really bad, and I don't want to tell you. And then I lost it. <laughs> so now, the truth is out. He said, he said what he needed to say, and, well, it wasn't what I expected. 
I was so relieved. You know, oh, that's it? Oh, well, oh, sorry, honey. <laughs> and you just don't expect to be relieved when someone tells you that they um, crap their pants. <laughs> but I was. I was so relieved and... You know, he was relieved to finally have the truth out, but, you know, he's still stressed out. But, you know, we figured it out. Um, we made a plan. There were some gym shorts in the back. And when we got to my sister's house, we made up some story and whatever. He was able to get clean um, quietly without telling anybody. And, um, you know, I was able to calm down um, once I realized that his bad news was not the bad news. I thought he was going to tell me. And yeah, we're still in love. And um, we haven't told anybody that story until now. And that's it. That's the day that Nathan had diarrhea um, of a physical kind. And I had diarrhea of an emotional kind. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it as much as we do. You're listening to KYRS, Medical Lake Spokane, 88.1 and 92.3 FM. Art Hour receives support from South Perry Pizza, featuring rotating local artists and serving hand-tossed artisan pizza, beer, and wine at 1011 South Perry Street and online at SouthPerryPizzaSpokane.com. Hang out with me, Jukebox Jenny, on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m. to hear America's very own music, the blues. Let me help you shake the trouble out with a mix of funk, R&B, and blues from Delta to Chicago. You'll hear... Don't forget to shake your rump, too. It's a cocktail that will soothe the soul. Working Woman's Blues, Sunday nights, 6 to 8 p.m., right here on KYRS. Our third third place winner is Stacy Connor. Seven years ago, Matt and I lost our last baby. I hiked to the top of his 80 acres out in Chatteroy every year to remember. It wasn't a leisurely stroll. I forced myself up that hill as fast as I could go because the icy sear of winter air in my lungs was the closest sensation I could find to the searing pain of losing a child. My ritual at the top wasn't gentle either. I took glass with me. I liked the sound as it shattered against the rocks. I considered my makeshift memorial. We celebrated our, the first five years of my 40s and the first five years of her non-existent life together. I wasn't prepared. We'd had some griefs. We had four children. Our first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. Our fourth child was a twin that melted into a single baby between the first ultrasound and the second. But nothing prepared me for the neonatologist's quiet, firm words. There's your baby, her beating heart, her tiny fingers, there's her leg. And right there, do you see? There's where her intestines are growing outside of her body. 
there's where her plates of her skull haven't fused together properly around her brain. Abnormalities incompatible with life outside the womb. It takes a while to understand. Abnormalities, okay, she'll be different. Incompatible, two things that can't exist together. And then life outside the womb. It sinks in slowly, ripping as it goes. A six-month death sentence. After that, there's nothing left but impossible end-of-life decisions for a baby we'd never know and never hold. My husband wasn't prepared when I came to him with a huge stack of paperwork, finished and ready for his signature. I want to be a foster mother, I told him. I want to hold babies until I can't stand babies anymore. Please, I begged. I feel like the pain in my chest will never go away. On my 45th birthday, her fifth, the year she should have started kindergarten, I set out on my trek a little half-heartedly. The snow was really deep and I only had until two o'clock when I had to pick up our four-year-old, our fifth child, a little blue-eyed love who'd come to us at nine months old and stayed from his preschool. About three or four bends up the trail, I ran directly into a mother moose standing across the path. I don't know if you've ever seen a moose in the wild, but I grew up on the East Coast. My dad was born and raised in Manhattan. We didn't even camp. I'm afraid of cows. Moose are like enormous alien beings. They tower above you with hooves the size of dinner plates. She was a resident on our land, usually appearing when she had a calf. I realized all this from the bottom of the trail, which I rushed to as fast as I possibly could to be within safe distance of my minivan. But I was determined, and so after a deep breath, I headed back up. My heart pounded around every turn, and I gradually relaxed into the hike, but about 200, 250 yards Beyond our first encounter, she stepped from the woods again, majestic and fucking huge. She said without any words at all, nope, not this way, not today. Again, at the bottom of the trail, gasping for breath, bitter and unhappy, I made the decision to head up my husband's road, which is actually a two-rut track to the cabin which is actually a shack, but Matt has more outdoorsmen in his pinky finger than I will ever have in my entire body, so I'll give him cabin. My head was down, focused on the deep snow, my shoulders hunched to match my mood, so it was the noise that I caught. I'd startled a great horned owl out of her perch on a spindly tree just to the left of the road. She hovered momentarily directly in front of me like a gray and white baby dragon and then flapped majestically away over the trees. I don't believe in signs, but I laughed out loud. And then I yelled to the universe, I get it, because I do. I could have laid in the snow and beaten my head against the dead moose of my dead baby 
my infertility, my scarred uterus, my age. Instead, I crawled and then limped a hard left and down a difficult and overgrown path. Because of it, we have our beautiful four-year-old son. And now a curly-haired, bright-eyed little boy who came to us for three days and stayed for three years. And 17 other gorgeous little owlets who came for a day or a week or a summer. Unintended happy endings, never a part of our plans. I don't believe in signs, but for me, owls will always be a reminder that unexpected beauty lays down every path and around even the darkest corners. So heads up, my loves, eyes open. We only get to take this walk once. Our second place winner of $100 is Eamon Neff. Hello, I'm Eamon Neff. In order for the story I want to tell you today to be believed, uh, I'm going to need to give you some background information. To understand my childhood and the chaos that reigned within it, you need a cursory knowledge of my father. Kiwi is the sort of man who is ruled by sheer impulse, who makes life-altering decisions on a whim. He's a human tempest in a constant battle with the ideas of comfort and stability. He has built illegal saunas in every home we've ever lived in, and he constantly tears down and rebuilds walls within homes with little explanation or warning given. Little to none. Over the years, I have watched my father carry a burning log in his open hand. I have seen him set himself on fire no less than three times, and I have seen him light our kitchen on fire as well. Uh, less exciting hijinks revolve eating moldy fudge and going back for seconds, added blending toothpicks to smoothies to increase the fiber, stabbing himself with a fork while moaning, uh, fleeing the police, uh, declaring that cheeseburgers are poison while eating one, and lastly, breaking our dog out of the pound in uh, jailbreak rather than pay, and this is true, the $10 processing fee. So, you need to have a little understanding of who we're working with for uh, going into this story. See, for as long as I can remember, my father has had this spark. It's a kind of spark that's only visible in the eyes and in the soul. It's the kind of spark that leads you to take action without regard for consequence. It's the kind of spark that makes you ask a couple at a restaurant who are clearly having a private conversation what they're having for dinner, or uh, talk loudly about your masturbation habits at your 12-year-old son's soccer games. It's that kind of spark. To put it simply, it's the spark of madness. Uh, so, finally, just the last little bit of background information, my father has made it a lifelong practice of inviting strangers into our home to live with us. These people have included ex-cons, drug addicts, the mentally disabled, future convicts, hippies, etc., etc., it goes on and on. This story is about uh, our unintentional finding of perhaps the most unique group of roommates that I have ever had. 
When I was 13, my father burst into my room unannounced and he told me we were going to go see a Maasai warrior troop doing a traditional cultural dance. Or as he phrased it, get up son, we're gonna go watch some African guys jump around. To his credit, my father was right. These guys could frickin' jump. We are talking about four foot verticals with nothing more than a slight bend in the knee. After the performance, I went to look at the merchandise table and to uh, try to talk with the performers a little bit. There were seven of them. Uh, they couldn't speak English very well, so I just found myself mostly looking at their handmade crafts and things of that nature while my dad talked to the troop leader, who was also the translator because he was the only one who could clearly speak English. When my dad caught up with me about half an hour later, I saw that the normal little spark in his eyes, that's normally, it's, it's just a spark of insanity, it's a hint, you know? I, my dad's not the kind of person who goes running around the streets raving like a madman, it's, it's just a little extra pinch of craziness. But I could tell that today someone had poured fuel on the spark. Um, and as anyone who grew up starting their own fires to keep warm can attest, Ignoring a spark can lead to getting burned, and that's what happened to me in this in instance, because I made the choice to ignore the flame that I saw in my father's eyes that day. I had learned from experience at that point that the best way to let my dad's ideas burn themselves out was to not engage with them, just not ask him about them, because the quickest way to make his crazy ideas into a reality was to engage him about those ideas. So I just thought, I don't know what he's thinking, but I'm not going to engage with it. Two weeks later, my father comes into my room unannounced again, and he says to me, hey, these guys are going to be staying with us for a while. And I'm like, what guys? Behind him, all seven Kenyan performers walk into my room unannounced. They're all carrying sleeping bags and backpacks, and they set them down all over the room. My dad just says, make yourselves comfortable, and leaves. As you might imagine, as a 13-year-old, I had not intended to share my room with seven adult men. Um, but I, I, it's important to understand at this point that while this, of course, seems crazy to me now, and while it undoubtedly sounds crazy to you, uh, it was normal for me at the time. When you grow up in complete insanity, craziness becomes normalcy, and you don't know how to tell the difference between the two. Over the next few months, I had no space to myself whatsoever. My room was completely taken over. I slept on the couch most nights or the floor, uh, and I did all of my homework at the dining room table when it wasn't in use. I don't want you to get the impression that this was a tragedy or that these men were totally terrible because they took over a 13-year-old boy's room. Uh, they needed somewhere to stay as badly as uh, anyone else needs somewhere to stay. So I'm not mad at my father for giving them a place to stay, although, of course, it would have been nice to have been considered in that. Uh, I got to teach these men how to play darts, how to swim, how to understand some basic levels of English, and in exchange they taught me some stuff about their culture and gave me a beautiful, magnificent, handmade Kenyan shield that I still have to this day. That said, there were a lot of negatives. Um, these guys' job was to perform at schools and things of that nature, and they were good at it. They'd go out and perform while I was at school, and when they came back, they would celebrate by drinking large bottles of liquor in my room, which I would have to clean up after the weekend. And they often had women over to, that they would sleep with, which um, 
I've, I've always sort of wondered how men who didn't speak any English convinced women to come have one-night stands in a child's bedroom. Uh, I don't know how, how someone pulls that off, but I suppose that's a conversation for another time. Um, it came to an end, of course, eventually. I'm 24 now. I'm not still living with these seven Kenyan men. But I gotta say that I never intended, I never would have imagined that as a result of going to see a cultural tradition, I would end up having to wash the sex out of my dinosaur-themed twin bedsheets before I was old enough to have my first kiss. Um, I'm Eamon Neff. Thank you for listening. You're invited to cruise Americana Avenue with me, Jim Tate, in your car or at the office, each Tuesday from 2 to 4 p.m. You'll hear the best in progressive American roots music in a multitude of styles. It's Americana Avenue on your radio station, KYRS. Art Hour relies on support from listeners like you. Just $3 a month helps keep KYRS going strong, and you can help by texting Give KYRS to 44321. That's all one word Give KYRS to 44321. Our grand prize winner of $150 is Travis Knott. Not only was he a favorite among the judges, he also had the most views and likes of all the videos. Congratulations, Travis. Here is his story. Go to sleep. Oh, I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to my computer. You see, I can't use my hands. I've got spinal muscular atrophy, which is a form of muscular dystrophy, which means I'm one of Jerry's kids. Or at least, I was one of Jerry's kids. Jerry's not around anymore. So, technically, I'm somebody else's stepkid. Uh, that's not right. Anyway, it's all beside the point, which I'll get to pretty soon. But the main point of this story, in a roundabout way, is due to muscular dystrophy. Not just the disease but the organization. They introduced me to some pretty cool people. Um, I've never been able to take a free step, and because of that, I was a poster child for a while. I know the person talking to you right now, not really poster worthy, but uh, I used to be cute. Anyway, during those days, I got the chance to be on TV quite a bit. Uh, I would ask people to send in their money, which was very altruistic. I wasn't keeping any of it. But uh, in those days, I would go down the night before, hang out in the bar. Well, this was after I grew up a bit. And uh, hobnob with some of the people that helped raise money. Now, a lot of those people that help raise money are firefighters. Firefighters are a wonderful group of individuals who put their life on the line, and I got to be one of their uh, sort of insiders. 
I would see how they did things when they weren't on duty. Now, that's my favorite time to hang out with any professional when they're not on duty. And let me tell you, off-duty firefighters know how to have a lot of fun. We ended up being pretty good friends. Not every firefighter, but a couple of them particularly. And one of them in particular, I would hang out with even outside of muscular dystrophy. I was down in the Tri-Cities one night, hanging out after a hockey game or some event, and we were singing karaoke. Now there's that old verb adage, nothing good happens after midnight. Well, I proved that wrong. At least they proved that wrong for me. You see, I was about four or five beers in. Don't tell the adult kids. I don't condone drinking. But I was 24, 25. And uh, that's what 24, 25-year-olds do. Especially when they don't have to drive. Because the karaoke bar was at the hotel. So I was out belting some Jim Morrison. Not physically, obviously, but with my voice. Uh, you see the button on my throat there. That's new. When I was 24, 25, there was no button. Um, the button now helps me breathe, allows me to talk. Back then, I was just gruff and had a gravelly voice. Voice is pretty much the same these days, but I don't stretch it quite so much. And anyway, as I was singing, no one here gets out alive. My buddy's boss came over, sat down at his table. Now, I don't know if he was his direct boss or just somebody higher up on the chain, but this guy was a fisherman. My buddy was a fisherman. I am a fisherman. I mean, I don't use my hands to reel the fish in or use my shoulders to hoist it up on the deck, but I like to be around when fish are being caught. I like to use my knowledge. I like to use my eyes. I like to be out on the water. Anyway, my buddy started telling his boss about me being a fisherman while I was singing, drunk in a bar at one in the morning. Well, my buddy's boss, pretty cool guy, was deciding to take a bunch of people to Alaska for a week to fish halibut. Now, I'm a smallmouth bass, trout in a local pond sort of guy. And he was talking about one of the biggest fishes in the sea in one of the most beautiful areas of the world. And he ended up asking me if I wanted to join them. I can't even walk down, hoist myself onto a boat. He was offering the assistance of his entire crew to deal with me physically for a week. And this is because I was out having a good time. Oh my goodness, it was unbelievable. So, I couldn't say yes right then. I mean, I was drunk. I didn't know really what he was asking me. So I asked for permission to wait 12 hours. I said, man, give me 12 hours and I will say yes or no. Because I'm scared. I'm nervous. I need a lot of help. And so the guy, my buddy's boss said, okay, you have 12 hours, 
here's the deal. If you say yes, I'll pay for your buddy's plane ticket. I'll pay for your plane ticket. And you won't have to worry about a thing for a week. So the next morning I presented the idea to my mom and dad. And they agreed that it was a shot worth taking. And uh, ten years later, it's still the coolest thing I ever did. And I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't just gone out and had a good time. If I hadn't been out with a friend. If I hadn't stayed up until after midnight when nothing good happens. That is an amazing thing. And I just uh, didn't intend it. Thanks. Now I'm going to tell my computer to stop recording. And never once will I have used my hands. Wake up. Mouse click. Pivot will be running another contest starting today with the theme Fish Out of Water. If you'd like to submit, and we hope you do, you can find the details at pivotspokane.com or on our Facebook page. You can also watch all the submitted videos by searching Pivot Spokane on YouTube. Pivot looks forward to hearing your stories. See you next week. For our episode a few weeks ago, we asked artists about their proudest moments. Local artist Charlie Schmidt submitted a story after our podcast had been completed, but it was so good, I wanted to make sure everybody heard it. Here is Charlie Schmidt's story. Hi, my name is Charlie Schmidt, and uh, I'm an artist here in Spokane. And you can see my stuff at charlieschmidtart.com. Um, just some random thoughts on the big picture about me and art. Um, the first drawing I ever did that I can remember was of a guy peeing, and I'm looking at it now. It's in a little about three by five inch spiral red notebook. I can't believe I still have it. When I was little, I had the urge to draw. I don't know where it came from. My mom was a beautician. My dad was a truck driver. Um, when my mom would get nylons, um, they would come on a little card that had rounded corners, a white card with rounded corners. And it was always good news to me because she would give me that card and then I could draw on it. So it was like, here we go. I don't have any of those. Um, I went to Catholic grade school and that was St. Anne's and they were so poor. All we had was glue and some green construction paper. So I did what I could with it, but I didn't save any of it. And then I remember going to the World's Fair in 62 at Seattle, and um, we went to the art pavilion, and I knew absolutely nothing about it, but we were standing there, and there was one of the paintings was just a gray field painting, just solid gray with somebody's signature on it. I don't remember who. And I thought it was really cool, and I stood there for a while, and all the people came by and just sneered at it, and they hated it like it was dumb or something. And I knew two things. One, that I could do that, and two, that um, 
nobody liked it, but I really liked it. And so I remember that. Then I went to Catholic high school at Gonzaga Prep, and we literally had no art, not even one minute of art in four years, which I don't understand. Um, so I still had to draw just like a frog needs to croak and a bear needs to poop in the woods. And so I would deface these little magazines that we would get called senior scholastics, and I would erase some of the ink and then put others, other stuff in there, and I'd make the girls on the back cover, which was the Noxema girls, I'd make their eyes rolling back and give them buck teeth and scars and tattoos and all kinds of stuff and hair coming out of their nose and boogers and everything. I still have those, and they're pretty cool. If we got caught um, making art, we got hacks. So that was a little rugged. Um, then I decided to go, I mean, my parents wanted me to go to college, so I went to college and... Uh, I was in chemistry and architecture, and I remember that they were both terribly boring, and I was hoping that architecture would have some drawing in it, and it probably does now, but then in the first year of that profession, uh, there's no drawing. It's just all other junk. And I think we did something with cardboard once, corrugated. It's pretty exciting. And so one night in the fall, it was, I guess, maybe my second year, I was walking back late in the day to the dorm from the chemistry building and it was cold out and I walked by this building and it said fine arts on it and I thought wow there's a whole building for art I mean I, I couldn't believe it I just thought that that was not possible and so um, I thought I would just go in so I as though I was being led by God or something I walked in and I went up the stairs and there was a gallery and most of the people were gone. Most of the students were gone because it was getting on to five o'clock. And in the gallery were all these fans going where every place where there would be a painting, there was a box fan blown against the wall. And then in the middle of the room, there was a sign that said, what this gallery needs is a change of air. And it really made me feel good. And I didn't know why. And somebody come up behind me and said, what do you think? And I said, uh, well, I think I could do that. And he said, well, why don't you? And I said, that's a very good question. It turned out to be George Lazner, who was a pretty cool glass blower from the East Coast. Really, really outrageous dude. And, and he said, well, what, what's your major? What are you doing? And I told him, and he said, well, what's the reason behind that? And I said, well, that's just where I'm going. And I went to high school to learn how to be a you know chemist and a scientist and that kind of junk, or maybe an engineer. And he said, look, it's not 5 o'clock yet. Why don't you go over to the architecture of the chemistry building and, and go to your advisor's office and get your folder and bring it to me, and then you can be an artist. And I said, okay. So I went over there, and I got it, and they gave it up pretty willingly. It was no big deal. I don't think they were sad to lose me. And I brought it over to George Lazner and handed it to him and he smiled and with his New York accent and he said, that's great. Here we go. So I walked home and I felt completely elevated. Like I was just like an angel or something. I just thought this is too good to be true. So then I called my parents that night and told them what I'd done and they were none too excited about it, but, but they were okay. It was okay. So here I am all these years later making art basically for a living, I guess. And 
these things stand out to me that Andy Warhol said you can't argue with your scrapbook and it's true you know on any given day you can feel as good or bad as you want but if you don't get anything done in your scrapbook then it's just another wasted day and what I mean by your scrapbook is you get things in there that were what Picasso says you should do is you find your gift and give it away so your scrapbook is evidence that you have found your gift and you have given it away and that's about as simple as I can make it and it doesn't say find your gift and sell it and it doesn't say find your way to make money and milk it it just says find your gift and give it away put it in your scrapbook and then that leads to my third hero which is um, Frank Zappa who said my only absurdity is my only reality and I really feel that way it's like when you look at somebody's face the look on their face is their response to the universe being right there right now and it's pretty profound and my reaction to the universe um, is like Frank's was pretty much absurdity I see the absurdity in it and it somehow nourishes my soul and makes it okay for me to keep going and so, um, and I'm guessing that if God, if people are like God, if God made people in his likeness or hers, that God must have a pretty weird sense of humor because he made me and I got a really weird sense of humor. So there's that. And the other thing to remember is you don't need a degree in something to do it. Just get started. When you take the first move, you're putting something into motion and, you know, a plan is just an excuse to get started and then things change and and you find things that you would never ever have found if you just didn't take that first move so my advice is quit listening to this and go think about what your next move is with your gift and giving it away and you can put it in your scrapbook in terms of getting it on the internet or taking a photo of it or getting right a write-up in the paper or whatever but just make a plan and then take the first step and let it take off and see where you go. Have a nice day. See ya.